Uh, tonight, I'm pleased to welcome uh, our, our own, the Aquarium's Assistant Curator of Mammals and Birds, Rob Mortensen. Um, he's going to be talking tonight about uh, some of the unique species of animals that are found on islands and ways in which we can help them avoid extinction. Rob's been with us slow these 18 plus years now. Um, a funny story, the first probably at least almost close to a year he was with us, a lot of us who worked here didn't even know him. Uh, when we uh, first received our sea otters, came down from Monterey, we weren't ready to put them on exhibit yet, so we had them stored temporarily down in San Diego, and Rob was assigned to go down there and, and take care of them. And every once in a great while, he'd show up here and show his face and say hi, but most of the time we were like, Rob, who's, does that guy still work here? <laughs> and then when the otters came back, so did Rob, and we were glad to have him. So. Um, he, uh, he's also been instrumental in, in establishing our, uh, our Guam Kingfisher breeding program. It was kind of his brainchild. It was his idea to get involved with that. Um, he's probably going to talk about that program, I imagine. I don't want to steal just a little bit. Uh, there are, at one point, there were 28 birds, I think, left in the entire world. Fish and wildlife biologists brought them into captivity, started a breeding program. There are about 160 now. Uh, they're extinct in the wild. So the hope is we can eventually get them to breed uh, in sufficient numbers and get them reintroduced into the wild. Um, Rob also uh, previously uh, worked, he's worked with lots of different kinds of animals. Uh, served as a zookeeper at Santa Barbara Zoo. Um, I think you were also at the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, is that correct? Yeah, okay. And uh, as was an, an aquarist at the John G. Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. Uh, he also spent some time in the Army, very diverse background. He was a, a crew chief uh, working with attack helicopters. So uh, he can take care of our animals. He can also fix whirlybirds. So, uh, earned his bachelor's degree in zoology and geology from Western Illinois University. And with that, it's my pleasure to welcome Rob Mortensen. here today that'll make a big difference for animals or ecosystems right away. A little bit less on the research. I mean, gaining the knowledge is great, but I've been really into applied conservation. Some of the projects that I've been involved in that I've really liked, I did a rapid ecological assessment while I worked at Shedd Aquarium for Parco del Este in the Dominican Republic. And it was practical that uh, that body of water and that body of land were given to the Dominican government by the oil plantation that had been down there previously, and they needed to know how to manage it to make sure that it was available for diving and that it was going to be sustainable. So John G. Shedd was asked to participate in that, so I got to go down there and work on that, which had a real practical application to it. So that was right up my alley. So I've always been interested in that. I've always been looking for um, these types of, uh, of um, adventures, I guess would be the best word to describe it. I'm hoping my PowerPoint will come back at one point. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, puppets. So I titled this Island Hopping, and there's a reason for that, um, and I'll get to that in just a minute as to what we were trying to do or what we are doing, and we do this on a yearly basis. Um, island hopping can mean different things depending on what generation you are. Um, most people probably know island hopping um, nowadays as getting on a helicopter and hopping around the Hawaiian Islands, so that's kind of what it's thought as of now. Uh, in World War II, it was a different thing. Uh, MacArthur came up with a strategy, or so he says, to uh, bypass islands that were held by the enemy and to cut those supply chains. That was what most people think of as island hopping. 
But uh, the Polynesians did it. Polynesians actually created the Polynesian Triangle here. These are the islands that um, were settled, and they went by uh, canoes to get to these various islands and set up this triangle. Now, Micronesia, you can see that up there where the Marianas Islands are. Let's see if I can show you the canoe. So that's how they, they made it, and that was a, a pretty adventurous voyage to get in these canoes and to uh, move over all that distance. And when they went there, they brought pigs, they brought dogs, they brought chickens, and they brought uh, plants, starter plants, food plants, uh, banana plants, yams, coconuts, uh, different things to eat on the voyage, and also things to plant when they got there. Well, as you can imagine, that had a negative effect, or sometimes a positive effect, on the wildlife. There weren't uh, too many native uh, land animals there, whether they be reptiles or they be mammals, um, things that lived there in the Marianas Islands and a lot of the islands of Polynesia were things that could fly in. So there are bats there, native bats. This is a Marianas fruit bat. Um, and of course, there are birds there as well. Some of the things that were brought in, though, were very beneficial. Anyone know what this is? Papaya, right, right, papaya. And I, I have a, I have a love-hate affair with papayas that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, they're very hard to get to on the island. But they were brought in. They're not native to those islands that are there. And then some things were bad. This is lantana. We have a lot of it planted around the aquarium. It's also not native to a lot of those islands. And it gets there and it smothers the native uh, vegetation. So lantana can be very bad. Um, I didn't know where lantana was from. So as I was walking through Tinian and, and Saipan and running into this stuff everywhere, I thought that's where it was from until somebody told me that it was invasive. Now, Fast forward, backtrack, depends how you look at it, to World War II. World War II saw a lot of cargo, a lot of cargo moving all over the Pacific Islands. Um, this was a typical cargo ship back in the day. And one of the worst things that could have happened happened because of this cargo movement. The brown tree snake got there. Uh, it's been seen in Hawaii. It's been seen on Rhoda. It's been seen on Tinian, Saipan, many, many islands. But its worst problem, or its uh, biggest problem it's created was actually done on Guam. And Perry talked a little bit earlier about the Guam kingfisher. The Guam kingfisher was uh, one of 11 species of forest birds that were found on Guam prior to the arrival of the brown tree snake. Now there are zero forest birds that are found there. The brown tree snake uh, didn't have any natural predators there. The birds that live there didn't have any defenses against the brown tree snake. It wiped them out. Um, the brown tree snake is everywhere there, and it costs about $4 million in damages to Guam yearly, uh, just by getting into electrical boxes that likes to get in there and destroy the power grid. Um, they're mildly venomous, they're super aggressive, they're able to get in very tight spots, they were able to decimate the bird population there very, very quickly. So we're trying to prevent that from happening on other islands. These are some of the animals that uh, were on Guam. Uh, this one is completely extinct here. This is the Guam flycatcher. Completely extinct. It was its own species there. Uh, birds like the top, you have the, uh, the Guam kingfisher or, or the Micronesian kingfisher. That's the bird that Perry was talking about that we have here. We went from 29 birds that they rescued off of Guam, that was all that was left, to about 160 birds now captively. We have put some back into Guam, but they're in protected situations because they're still at risk. The brown tree snakes are still there. And then the other bird over here, the, the larger bird, that's a Guam rail also uh, taken off of Guam before they went extinct, and now I think that population's up to 214 or so birds, and they've been reintroduced there as well in protected areas. 
So how do you prevent disasters? Well, this has been probably the most successful way to prevent the brown tree snake from establishing itself on other islands, so whether it be in Hawaii, Saipan, and even Guam, even where they're already at, they still want to monitor the population and try and reduce it where possible. So the dogs are trained to sniff out the snakes. So when you first land in any of these islands there, don't be surprised to see a customs person come up to you with a little dog, usually a beagle, a little terrier like this, and they'll sniff out the snakes and find them if they're on the plane. That's proven to be very, very effective. This is kind of a fascinating story. So somebody figured out that the brown tree snakes are really susceptible to Tylenol. So that means you have to parachute dead mice into the forest. This, this is pretty funny. That's a little dead mouse, and that's this little parachute. This is from a helicopter, so this is a really precise drop. Sometimes they have planes that fly over, and they scatter drop in, and so you don't want to be underneath the plane's path when it's dropping all these dead mice, and they come parachuting in. But we did figure out that that does control the population. So as you can imagine, well, going back to my helicopter background, flying a helicopter is very expensive, about $7,000 an hour in maintenance and, and aviation fuel. So this adds to the total cost of trying to control the brown tree snake just doing these flights and dropping these mice on the islands. But if you have ever been to Guam and seen how many uh, snakes are there and how they're everywhere, uh, this is really effective, although costly. Uh, some of the animals are decent about taking care of themselves and helping to maintain their populations. This little animal is the Mariana Swiftlet. It's a very good flyer, and it's able to move from island to island. That's very important, because if it gets wiped out on an island, there are other ones that can come back into the island and recolonize it. Uh, the bird has been um, extirpated in some of the islands, though, where there are brown tree snakes, and they just don't get enough recruitment back into that population to make a big difference. But it is one of the animals that was found on Guam, one of those forest birds that's not found there now, but it did move to other islands. And then you've got some animals that just have really restricted uh, areas in which they live. This is one of the birds that we were actually looking at collecting and moving. This is the bridled white-eye. This is the golden white-eye up here. You typically don't find them on the same islands. The golden white-eyes tend to be a little bit more aggressive they tend to phase out the bridled white eyes. So even though Tinian and Saipan, and I'll show you a picture in a little bit, are about six miles apart, you don't find the bridled white eyes over on the island of Saipan. They just don't move there. They get outcompeted by these golden white eyes. That doesn't mean that the golden white eyes are doing okay because the brown tree snakes are there in Saipan as well. So we actually move those guys to another island. And I'll explain how we pick the islands in just a moment. Okay, so now this is what we do. This is the per Pacific Bird um, Conservation, and the specific program is the Marianas Avifauna um, Conservation Program that we do. And this is kind of a multi-tiered approach. So this is taking some of the wild birds into captive situations, zoos and aquariums, and we breed them. We're trying to get ahead of the, the kingfisher uh, game that we were playing where we had 29 animals, and that was all that was left of that species and trying to breed them, and we had to work out the husbandry. So initially, we weren't breeding the birds very effectively. We weren't even keeping the birds alive very effectively, and so it really looked like we might lose that entire species. We've gotten a little bit ahead of the game now with some of these other species where we actually have captive populations and we're learning about them, we're learning how to breed them and how to maintain them just in case. So it's a bit of a two-prong approach. We want to move them to another island, and we want to be able to keep a captive, sustained population as well. Um, and they're very difficult birds in some cases, so it's not quite worked out yet. To go back a little bit further, though, um, a lot of people don't even know where the northern Marianas Islands are. Everybody knows the Marianas Trench, though. 
presumably. And uh, that's where you find the Marianas Islands, Saipan, Tinian, Guam on the southern end of it. And they're pretty far over. Trust me, it was a really long flight to get there. And uh, the only way to get there was to fly to Hawaii and then fly to Guam and then get on a little puddle jumper and fly into Saipan and then get on another little puddle jumper and fly over to Tinian. So there was a lot of flying that day. I didn't look very good. To give you a little bit closer look at it, um, these are the islands of the Northern Marianas Islands, which are uh, U.S. Uh, protectorate. So this is U.S. territory up there, which makes working with fish and wildlife there a little bit easier for us, because that's always one of the problems we have when we want to go and do these conservation programs overseas. You have to work with the government. Even though this is a, a U.S. territory and it's a little easier, there's still a lot of politics involved there and how you have to do things. And I'll explain a little bit more about that and why our trip was longer than expected. Um, Saipan, as you can see, is this larger island down here. It's where the, most of the population of the Northern Marianas Islands are. And then Tinian is just that little six mile away tiny island. And that's mostly where we did our work. Uh, although we have uh, also done work on Rota and we've done work on Sarigen and Guigan up there in the north. And I, I will tell you that um, the helicopter can reach Sarigen, but it can't reach Guigan. So that means a boat ride, which is not fun for 24 hours out on that sea either. I'll show you the boat. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Who we're helping. So these are the three species of birds that we're primarily interested in when we do our work on Tinian or on um, Saipan. This is the Rufus fantail over here. You can guess by the big fantail. Again, this is our friend, the bridled white eye. And that's the Tinian monarch. Uh, the Tinian monarch is a flycatcher, like that other one that we saw that was extinct on Guam. It's only found on the island of Tinian, which is a very, very small island. Brown tree snakes have been seen there, so we're worried that if we don't move the Tinian monarch, brown tree snake population explodes. There goes the Tinian monarch as well. So those are those three primary species that we're looking for. Kind of the trick to this all, though, is they can't all coexist in the same habitats, because when we go and look at the other islands, we have to look at what else lives there. And if there's any bridled white eyes, we can't put the, I'm sorry, if there's any golden white eyes, we can't put the bridled white eye there. If there's Tinian monarchs, there can't be any other flycatchers there. So there's got to be a lot of research that's done ahead of time to look at these islands and make sure that they're appropriate for what we're trying to do. So we send crews of teams down there to do this, uh, this preparatory research as well. So here's our friend. This is the, the home that we were shooting for. As you can see, it's pretty volcanic, isn't it? So I had to climb the side of that, which wasn't fun with the bird strapped to my back. I'll show you a picture of me falling. I think I have that in here. Um, I was really bummed that the videographer got that on camera. I was hoping nobody saw that. So going back to, uh, to Tinian, this is Tinian again. And you see this long strip here. This is a, for anyone a history buff out there? A few, few history buffs out there. So you know what Tinian's famous for? No? Uh, pardon? How about runway able if I say that to you? Does that mean anything? No? Okay, I'm dating myself here. Enola Gay took off from Tinian. So uh, this, is, this is runway Able here. It's still maintained by the US Navy. This is where the Enola Gay took off on both of its flights when we bombed Japan in World War II. So this was the main base that they used. And if you go there today, you can still go on run, runway Able, and they've got a wooden sign out there. And the force is largely trying to encroach back on it. But the, the Navy has some large equipment that goes through there and, and does keep the four runways open in Tinian. One of the problems, this was a very uh, a fiercely fought battle on Tinian and Saipan uh, between the Imperial Forces of Japan and the Allied Forces. 
and it's littered with munitions still. So before we can even go out on an island, we have to have a munitions training course to make sure that we can identify some of these debris that you might find. Because there's shell casings out there, mortar rounds, mines, bombs. Uh, when the U.S. left the place, they left planes sitting out there, jeeps sitting out there, all kinds of things. And the Navy ended up bringing bulldozers in and just scraping off the whole surface layer of soil and pushing it into the ocean just to get rid of all those munitions and all that debris that was out there. So they really didn't have anything left. And when it would rain there, they found that they had a massive erosion problem. All the remaining soil they have when soil was precious on this limestone island was washing away. And so they brought in some plants pretty quickly to try and reseed the island to get some vegetation to hold the soil together. So they enter Tangan Tangan, and I'll show you a picture of that in just a second. So this is this South American fast-growing herbaceous uh, legume that uh, grows everywhere in this limestone forest. And it's good habitat for the animals, but it's really hard to walk through if you're a person. So uh, I was cursing them for that. But a lot of the native limestone forest is gone. The trees just don't exist that used to be there anymore. So this is this new artificial habitat that we've created on the island of Tinian here. This is what Tinian looked like in World War II. I, can't, I don't know if this was Japanese base when the Japanese held it or if this is after the Americans. But you can see there's the, the four runways there. Able, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta runways. Um, and you can see that the base was pretty extensively used, and there's an airport in the background as well, which is still there. That's how you fly into there these days. This little part here in the foreground, going back to that picture I showed you, is that corner that we're looking at. And the Navy still uses, you can see where that vegetation line is there, where it changes. The Navy still uses this as a bombing range. So we weren't allowed to go out into that part for obvious reasons. But we got our permits, and we were working in this really heavy tangan-tangan jungle out here, and that's where we were actually looking to collect the birds. This is what the tangan-tangan forest looks like, the limestone forest that's there now. So this is what it looks like after you spend about four hours with a machete trying to clear a path through it so that you can put up your nets. And you can see this is the actual tangan-tangan here, the plant. You can see this uh, feathery-looking plant here on the right-hand side. So that is everywhere in there. But we had to clear it out because you have to put nets through, and the nets have to have enough space in between them for the birds to have a flight path. So a lot of machete, and you got to watch out for that guy Paul with a machete too. Don't walk up behind your buddy. So that's Tangan Tangan when it's young. And then there's also banyan trees there, and you can see there's one of our nets that runs right through it. Um, one of the things that, uh, that you have to do is cut trails in the deep forest depending on which species of bird. You have to know what the bird's habit is. For the Tinian monarchs that we were looking for, they like this deep brush, so you have to put the nets in there. For the bridal white eyes, we had some easier areas to work with. So here's uh, Paul going in there chopping with the machete. And I'll tell you, I'm allergic to bees. So one of the things that I discovered there as we were macheting through the forest is that they have these things called boonie bees, which are paper wasps, and they're everywhere in there. They have tiny nests and about four or five wasps per one. I got stung so many times. I was popping Benadryl like it was candy. And they were like, why is Rob asleep again? Benadryl, it's your friend. Um, so genius Paul here, we find this sign that talks about these, um, uh, these different structures that they have in there as we're walking along one of the historic trails. And he starts tapping on it with this machete while there was boonie bees underneath it. It's about a million of them that all came out and gave us a good chase. So I got about six or seven stings through that one. So I've decided next year when I go, I'm not going to go on the, the machete trips. This is a little bit easier. Uh, so this is actually just a road that connects the different uh, runways that you saw there. 
And we would put um, the larger, taller mist nets in these areas, and we'd catch the bridled white eyes in here. So this was a lot easier to set up. But there's a lot of asphalt in this area, so driving your tent pegs to hold the, um, the fence up isn't exactly easy. And you can see there's lantana around a couple of the different corners there, which we talked about earlier. So this one is kind of dark, but you can see these are the two different types of nets that we were putting up, these really, really tall nets, and you can just see the, the mist net up there at the top. And then we're catching bridled white eyes mostly with those. And then over here in the deep forest, you can see these nets. And we were catching the tinian monarchs in these. And we're catching a lot of other birds as well, and even these really big beetles, which are really hard to untangle from the nets. Um, you see the ribbons on there, and we tie the nets up at night so they would stay in place, but we had to tie them up very, very tightly because we didn't want any of the birds to get caught in the net while we weren't there to rescue them. One of the big problems you have when you're catching birds in these forest uh, areas uh, is predators, and I'll talk about that in just a second, and also overheating. It can be very stressful to birds, especially if they're out in the direct sun. It's very humid, very hot there during midday, so we had to sit out there and have eyes on the net at all times, and it's really hard to see the birds in the net surprisingly hard. Uh, we get a lot of leaves in the nets too, which you have to go and pick out, and it's hard to tell what's a leaf and what's a bird. A lot of our time was spent walking the trail, so it's about a mile or so, maybe a mile and a half, to walk all the different nets that are put out, you know, 11, 12, 13 nets uh, in a pattern, and we have to walk those every 15 minutes. So most of the day consisted of trying to hydrate and stay cool, waiting 15 minutes and then walking a net uh, patrol again. And we had about 40 to 50 nets out at any given time. So we had quite a few of them. And we had to move the nets every day. So the birds learn where the nets are at, or the birds simply aren't in that area anymore because you've collected some of those. And we were targeting about 100 birds, um, about 50 and 50 from the different two species we were looking at. So what does it look like when you miss net a bird? Well, this is what it looks like. So they're pretty tiny. This is a rufous fantail that you can see is caught in the net there. And it takes about, um, if you're lucky, four or five minutes to untangle one. And if you're unlucky and they're really tangled in there, it can take you 20 minutes to untangle one. Um, it's very hot and frustrating to sit there and fight with the birds. So you can see, uh, here she is. She's working on this bird. And you can see Scott in the background there. He's the supervisor. He's waiting to see if she's going to need a hand. There's Scott. He couldn't help himself. And we use a, uh, a sewing needle, some yarn, magnifying glass. Uh, different tools to help us untangle them, but we have to get them out of there fairly quickly. They have these honey creepers there, which weren't one of the birds we were interested in, and they have this weird habit of getting their tongue stuck in the net. So untangling a bird's tongue is really time consuming. I'm not, not even sure how they do it. But, and eventually we get the birds out, hold them by their legs. This wasn't one of the species that we wanted, unfortunately, so after 20 minutes struggle, we let this guy go. These are also birds that we didn't want, and we spent quite a bit of time untangling the unwanted ones as well. This is, again, the honey creeper I was just talking about with the tongue issue. I don't know why they do that. And then over there, that's an introduced species, a waxbill, also that we didn't want, so we released that one as well. I'll tell you a story. So we got all of our bridled white eyes. We, had, we wanted 55 of them. We caught 55. I walked the last one over to the boxes, went to slide it in there. It flew away. It was the most embarrassing thing to have to walk back to the camp and tell everybody, no, 54, we got to get another one. And it took us two days to get the other one, so, yeah. Yeah, I was so cocky with myself, too, because I'd gotten all my birds in the box safely without a single escape until the last one. So I handed, when I caught 55, I handed it to somebody else. I said, let's not jinx it. And uh, 
as you can probably tell from my enthusiasm for kingfishers, I tend to be a big kingfisher fan. So this was like my coup de gras there when I caught the white-collared kingfisher in there. Uh, this was not a target species that we were looking for as well. And they're big and they're mean. Um, but I was so excited. It took me about 20 minutes to get this guy out of the net. I had a black eye. Uh, but I didn't want anyone to come help me with it. So it was my own project. But I was very excited. But sad I had to let him go. So they wouldn't let me bring him back. But it was a very cool bird. One of the problems we had with the kingfishers, though, is that the kingfishers would try and eat the other birds that were in the nets. So we had to walk the nets on a pretty regular basis to make sure these guys weren't trying to pick them off. Overall, as far as we know, we only had uh, one death to predation, and it was a feral cat. So we go back to the, uh, the feral problem on the islands, and we did have feral cats there. And we did uh, have a feral cat get one of the rufous fantails out of the net. Um, so this is uh, just kind of a close-up of what it looks like. I don't know if you can see how happy Scott is, but this is uh, 53 for the Tinian monarchs. So this was our last one of those that we needed to collect. And the Tinian monarchs are pretty hard to get. And then this is where you house them temporarily, where you walk them back from the net to get them to the boxes. So we put them in a bag, and uh, the, it's just our acronym, so we'll tell us which bird it is. Uh, so Miho just means that it's a um, Tinian monarch. Uh, the net 11, and then that was bird 6. Okay, So even though we're doing all this field work and we're out and we're hot and we're sweaty and we're getting stung by boonie bees and, and ducking for machete blows, um, there's a full crew that was back in our base camp in the air-conditioned room that were working. Notice how that works. They were back, the veterinarians. They were back in the air-conditioned room back in the hotel uh, and they were banding the birds as we brought them in, getting blood samples from the birds, getting weights from the birds. We weighed them every day, and we're collecting food. Again, going back to those papayas that we had to go and collect, because that's what the bridled white eyes would eat. So you have to find the papayas on the island or buy them, and it's hard to find them there. So I got into several fights with these giant spiders over papayas, because I found that the best papaya plants were the ones that were surrounded by these giant spider webs, because the natives wouldn't go in there and get them. They were afraid of the spiders. So. Me and my machete went in. And I guess that was the most amazing spider web I've ever run into, because it literally stopped me a couple times, and I was a little worried that I was going to have to call for help. No, I'm serious. They were really tough spiders. So this is just the typical inside of, of the birdhouse. Um, and this was kind of an ingenious thing. So this perch actually has a little scale that you can slide underneath it from the top, so you don't have to open the box up to weigh the bird every day. You just wait for them to get on the perch raise it up a little bit, put your scale in it, and you can get a weight. So we were doing that twice a day with the birds, three times a day feeding them. Uh, one of the grossest things that we had all these fish that were out in the sun in these fly traps collecting flies for the fly catchers, as you can imagine. So uh, transferring flies from a fly trap into a petri dish to slide into a birdhouse. Um, I had a little friend. I'll show you him in a minute. He was really great with this. So, a couple of the days after we got all the birds we wanted, then we just had to work on holding them until we were clear to take the boat and get the birds to the next island. So this is, a, I volunteered, I'm the morning early person, so typically I would head out in the morning and help clean the boxes and record the weights. This was one of my favorite things to do once we got them in there, is that you stuff a bird into a toilet paper roll, and that's how you get a weight out of them. So I thought that was genius. That's what it looks like. So Yeah, and I, I got some kind of perverse pleasure out of doing that. But uh, very effective way to weigh your birds. And they fit in there just perfectly. So this is my little flycatcher helper here. This is Eric. Eric lived at the hotel that we stayed at when we had the birds in there. And he was great. So he would help us transfer the flies. He got in trouble a lot because he let too many of the flies go. So uh, Peter wasn't too happy with him. 
but he was always willing to go out and help us catch the traps and talk to me about transformers, and we had dark gun wars, which was a blast. We had to wait a long period of time because we didn't have our boat approved from the, uh, the CNMI government to take the birds up to Guaygon, which is the, the next island that we were going to go to with them. So we ended up spending a lot of time just taking care of the birds. And we actually got to a kind of a panicky point by the end where we thought we might have to take the birds back to Tinian and release them back on the island again because we weren't sure that the boat was going to ever be approved for us. It was sitting on the governor's desk waiting for him to sign it, approving us to take the boat. That might have been a good thing if you'd been on the boat. So this was our boat that we took, and we had to go about 165 nautical miles on this, which took us 24 hours on this boat doing about eight knots. Um, not sure why it took so long. At one point, the battery compartment was flooded, and I was a little worried when they pulled the batteries out and had them on the deck with cords running back into the battery compartment. Um, but the life raft was in really, really good shape. It was brand new, so I slept really close to that. And we had an emergency beacon on the boat, too, which is also brand new that they were required to install for the trip. So they were going to tell us where we went down if we did go down in the boat. And you notice the boat had a list. I was a little worried about that when it came into port the first time. But so I was excited because I was the middle crew. So I wasn't going to go on the boat trip or have to climb the volcanic mountain. I was just there to collect the birds. Well, we didn't get the boat contract signed right away. And so they asked me if I could stay and do the boat ride. And I was like, sure. I'm going to die. So this guy was my hero. This was the uh, port police there. And he came and he insisted that we have life jackets on the boat, despite, despite the fact that the crew decided we didn't need the life jackets. And I was standing in the background praying, please get life jackets. So we got our life jackets. We had our raft and we had our buoy. And uh, this was maybe a safer boat. So this was the little boat that once we got to Guaygan 24 hours later, Oh, by the way, I'm going to throw a little kudos my way. I was the only one on our trip that didn't throw up on the boat ride. It was really awful. I was slipping boning. Not telling them that, though. So once we got to the place, you can't land the big boat. So you just have to drop anchor out there, and then you have to transfer over to this little boat. So you can see that we've got the precious bird boxes, and we have about eight birds um, in each one of those long boxes. And they're like gold. You know, We spent all this time and energy collecting them. So we said, if anyone falls over, save the birds. And uh, I was one of the youngest people on the trip, so guess who got selected to use the ski poles and take the birds up the mountain? So that's me in my Canada hat. That's when I first started. I was fresh. That was one of the first trips. This is near the top. I think I was swearing at this point. It was really hot and humid. I drank a, uh, two or three of those five-gallon things of water that we lugged up the hill. But we finally made it up the hill with the birds. And uh, we were setting up for release here. So these are all the different bird compartments we have. Now, this was a pretty cool process. This was pretty memorable because there aren't any forest birds on Guaygon. There are a lot of seabirds that were there, and they were checking us out. They hadn't even seen people before. So we had all these, um, the boobies and some of the other birds uh, that were flying around us checking us out because there's literally nobody else on the island. And then we were taking the very first forest birds up there and letting them go for the first time. So this is what success looks like. And you can just see that blur there is one of the uh, Tinian monarchs taken off for the first time on Guaygon. And that's the guy who filmed me falling down. I think I must have omitted that slide, but when I wiped out with the birds on my back. So I wanted to thank a couple of the following people. Um, the Pacific uh, Bird Conservation, Herb Roberts and Peter Luscombe, they started this process up. They do it in Hawaii, they do it in Samoa, and they also do it here in the Northern Marianas Islands. Toledo Zoo, uh, Justin Grubb in particular, he was the videographer slash photographer who helped us out. Also the aquarium. 
it's such a great experience for uh, us to do this kind of things, to have a practical hands-on approach to conservation, something we can do and really hang our hat on. They're super proud of, uh, of AZA and all the facilities that participate in this, and we had quite the range of different participants. We had St. Louis Zoo, Toledo Zoo. Uh, I think we were the only aquarium to have ever done this, uh, so that was a, a good thing for us to get involved in and do this as well, and it's right up our alley. And also all the participants of the MAC program, and there was about 20-something uh, people involved in this doing education outreach, macheting their way in, ticking off the boonie bees. Um, so everybody had their different specialty when we were out there. And uh, you know, in the end, it was a really great experience. So I just want to say thank you. I'll take questions. And uh, this is a little bright old white eye that shows you just how small they are. So when you're trying to stuff them into that box, you can understand why he got out. <laughs>